0: Uh, Tim and his wife, Cindy, have three children. Uh, They made Timberlake UMC their home last summer. Uh, Tim is also an associate dean at Liberty University School of Law. Uh, Prior to joining Liberty Law, he served as president of of an organization called Freedom 424, which I'm sure you'll hear a little bit more about. It is an anti-sex trafficking nonprofit organization, and he currently serves on that organization's board of directors as chairman. Uh, before working with Freedom 424, Tim practiced law in Norfolk and, and in Lynchburg for eight years. Uh, before attending law school, Tim studied theology and missions for three years at Elam Bible Institute in Rochester, New York. And those are the things that I wrote down for him, but I just want to say as well, uh, Tim is an amazing man that I've been able to see as a good father as well. Uh, his has a heart to see people change and to see this world change for something better. And so i'm going to welcome him now to come and deliver our sermon today and uh if i could can i pray for you first that would be awesome lord i say thank you so much for tim i say thank you for his life and his expression of who you are in it god i say thank you that he is overcome by your grace and lord i ask that you would continue to show your grace upon him even right now as he proclaims the things that you have taught him and told him over the years and even this past week lord we say thank you so much for all that he has done all that he's doing But more than anything, Father, we say thank you for his life. We say thank you that you have given him the ability to to speak and to speak for those uh, who might not have a voice. And we just ask that you would just continue to use him, guide him, direct him, even now. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning.
1: That's awesome. Uh, As uh, Pastor Matt said, my name is Tim Spalding. And uh, I'm really excited to be here with you this morning and uh, just an, an opportunity to share with you uh, just from my heart and uh, a little bit on the series that we're doing uh, today, or we've been doing uh, these last, starting last week. So in 1964, in Queens, New York, a young woman with chin-length dark hair named Kitty Ginobisi was stabbed to death in the early morning hours of March 13th while she was walking home from work after a long shift to a local diner. Over the course of half an hour, she was chased down the street by her assailant and stabbed three times. Each time she was attacked, she cried out and her assailant, he ran away, thinking that somebody would call the police. And he'd sit and he'd wait. No sirens, no nothing. And so he got back up, and he'd go and he found her and he stabbed her again. And again, she cried out, as we all naturally would. And the second time, the man ran away thinking, okay, at some point, there's going to be police coming, and I don't want to get caught. And so he hides away in a dark corner of an alley and waits and waits. And there's no sirens. There's no lights being turned on. There's no one coming outside. There's nothing but silence. And so he goes a third time. He finds Kitty, and he finishes her off. Three times she was attacked. In the aftermath of that, it came to light that 38 of her neighbors heard the attack. They either watched or listened from the safety of their homes. And what's unfathomable is not one of them called the police. And no one came to her aid. Our key scripture this week is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, and it's this. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So last week, uh, Pastor Brad set the table and introduced this series called Made for a Miracle. And depending upon how you, 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 uh, you hear the statement or you read the statement, Made for a Miracle, you can kind of have two thoughts, right? The first one is a little bit of an egocentric one. Oh, hey, I was made to receive a miracle. As in God is gonna do miracles in my life that benefit me. Something good is coming my way, like winning the lottery, right? I was made to receive something. The other way that you could read that statement being made for a miracle is that we were made to be a vehicle for a miracle to occur in someone else's life. And that's really where I think the crux of Jesus' ministry is. It's pointing out that we are, Jesus always calls us out of our comfort zone and in into relationship with others. It's about being a miracle in someone else's life. And the focus of this series that we're gonna talk about this morning is, is, is the concept uh, that miracles come with a cost. And last week, Pastor Brad, he, he discussed how miracles have Uh, Two parts, right? The first one being divine intervention and two, human willingness. And today we're talking about that second part, the human willingness aspect. One of the illustrations last week was from, uh, I believe Luke chapter nine, the feeding of the 5,000. And what was one of the things that I took away from it was this, is that miracles require action and it required action on the part of the disciples. So remember the disciples came, they gave Jesus the five loaves, they gave him the two fish and Jesus blessed them and then he gave them back to the disciples to give to the people. The human willingness required of the disciples was not anything heroic. It wasn't any act of bravery. It was just simple, mundane obedience. See, it wasn't enough that Jesus just multiplied the fish and the loaves. That wasn't enough. It required this, this, this act on the part of the disciples, a super simple faith that says, I'll do what you say, Jesus, and that sort of obedience. So Kitty's death in 1964, it provoked the ire of New Yorkers, and it prompted uh, many to attribute um, the social malaise that was demonstrated and the lack of care and concern for a fellow citizen. People, people attributed that to close quarter urban living. People thought, what is wrong with us here in New York City that one of our own is murdered? And people heard it, but nobody did anything. Why is that? And so, the, so the, the common thought was like, well, that's just because, you know, that's what happens when you live in, in cities. Has anybody been on the subway in New York City? Right? You're surrounded by people. You're packed in like sardines and no one's really looking at each other. Right? Especially nowadays with smartphones. Everyone's head is facing down. But before smartphones, go back 15 years, 20 years. When you're in the subway, you're close. You're, you're, you're smelling the person next to you, whether you want to or not. And sometimes it's good, to, whether it's the morning or the afternoon it really makes a big difference, I'll be honest with you. But late in the day, you're standing there, you're like, oh my goodness, why is this person leaning on me? Why is this person doing this? Why is, and, and no one's really making eye contact. And so people said, hey, that's what happened. That's really what was going on there. And while that sounds plausible, research shows otherwise. See, the, kidding, the killing of Kitty Genovese is a prime example of what social psychologists call the bystander effect. And the bystander effect is this. It's a social psychological phenomenon that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer any means of help to a victim when other people are present. Said another way, when an emergency exists, the more bystanders there are, the less likely it is that anyone is going to help. Studies of this phenomenon have found that, 50, that people are 50, 54% more likely to help when they are the only person observing an emergency. 54% more likely. So I don't exactly know how they do these studies, but when they, when they put people in situations where they knew I am the only person who sees what's happening, I am the only person that can respond, they're 54% more likely to help somebody. People don't sit back and think, well, I don't, I don't know that I know CPR. I don't know that I'm strong enough. I don't know that I'm smart enough. I'm not making this up. It's kind of crazy. The thing is, it's not often uh, a purposeful or consciousness, or conscious choice not to help. Rather, it's thinking that someone else is better qualified or better suited. But in almost every case, all that's needed is a simple act of obedience, very similar to with the disciples, stepping up. It's not necessarily that some discrete knowledge is required, but simple action. Oftentimes, you know, we think, I, you know, I've seen situations where, hey, someone's someone's uh, someone's choking on food. And I'm like, I think I get a chair, the Heimlich maneuver. I don't exactly remember how this goes. Do you push on the stomach? Do you push here? We all kind of go, run through these machinations and then there's someone who's like, hey, I'm an EMT. I'm a doctor. Is there a doctor in the house, right? And someone steps up and, and, and helps out. But in those situations, if you weren't there, what would you do? Or if no one else was there, it was just you, you'd be like, hey, I'm gonna do everything I can to help this person. So... In, in introducing me, Pastor Matt mentioned that I worked with uh, an organization uh, called Freedom 424. It's an organization based in Lynchburg, Virginia, and it's an anti-trafficking organization. The purpose of Freedom 424 is to bring freedom and justice to victims and survivors of human trafficking. And we do that through partnering with uh, organizations and fundraising and raising awareness in communities. And it, that's a whole other ball of wax. We're not gonna get into that much today. But what I, what I commonly came into was, was people who were shocked and surprised at how prevalent human trafficking was in the United States. And see, this kind of work, when you're fighting human trafficking, the bystander effect is so often in place. But there's also this paralysis that I see in people. This, 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 this paralysis when you realize this, this, this problem is huge, it's massive, it's not just in Thailand, it's not just in India, it's here in the United States, it's here in Virginia, it's here in Lynchburg. And when people hear that, they're like, oh my goodness, what can I do? So let me just give you a, a little bit of the numbers on, on, on uh, human trafficking. Right now, today, there are more slaves in the world than at any point in human history, including the height of the transatlantic slave trade. Studies show that human trafficking is right around a $32 billion industry on an annual basis. If nothing changes in the next few years, it will eclipse the illegal drug trade and take the title of the largest and most lucrative criminal enterprise that the world has ever seen. And in those odds and facing that, people would say, but what can I do? I'm one person. We are one church. What can we do in the face of such great evil? And my answer is always plenty. There's so much that we can do. See, we don't all have to make it our life's mission to tackle a huge evil. Regardless of where we want to make a difference, the mindset is exactly the same. See, to make a difference in the world to make an impact in society, to bring a miracle to bear in another person's life. We have to shift our focus from the problem and focus on the felt needs of a single person. So there's this quote by a woman named Margaret Mead, and I I absolutely love this. It's one of my favorite quotes. And Margaret says this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30 to 35, we read the story of the Good Samaritan. And we all know this one. This is like one of those classic ones from childhood with the flannel graph and there's the guy with the donkey and you know the, the Sunday school teacher would move them around and they'd fall and all that fun stuff. But, but we know the story. We've all heard this one. So there's this guy, he's on his way from, see, there's our flannel graph. I miss that stuff. So there's a guy, he's on his way from uh, Jerusalem up to Jericho. And on that journey, he's attacked by robbers, right? He's attacked, he's stripped, he's left for dead. He's lying there on a road in the hot sun. And three people walk by. And the first one coming by is a priest, since Pastor Brad's not here today. Anyway, so the first one is a priest. And the priest is walking by, and what does he do? He sees the man on the side road. He steps over to the other side, and he just keeps on going. Because why? He's got stuff to do. And you can imagine the man who's lying there thinking, oh my goodness, finally, somebody's coming. And this guy just walks right on by. And then guy number two, he's a Levite. And he comes up and he walks past the guy. He goes on the other side of the road and says, I'm busy, I got places to go, I got people to see. And you know what? This is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's kind of a busy road. Somebody else is gonna come along and help this guy. I got too many things going on. And then the third person we all know is a Samaritan. Now, I know you have all heard this, but Samaritans, remember the Jews and the Samaritans weren't necessarily the best of friends. Geographically, if you look at, uh, if, if you look at a map of the Holy Land, To go from Judea up to Galilee, there's this big chunk in the middle between the two and it's called Samaria. And Jews, as we know, routinely went out of their way to go from Judea to Galilee. They go all the way around. They're like, yeah, I don't really wanna go through that area. So I was trying to think, what's in a local equivalence? So a local equivalence would be this. If you wanted to trap, so you're leaving from Lynchburg and you wanna go to Amherst, right? I don't really want to go through Madison Heights. So I'm going to take 501 out to Glasgow. Then I'm going to scooch up to 60. I'm going to take 60 all the way back across Amherst. That's like a local equivalency. I really don't like Madison Heights. I personally love Madison Heights. I like Sluggos and I like Silver Pig Barbecue and everything else that's there. But that's, that's kind of like what an equivalence would be. It's you're going to go two hours out of your way to avoid going through an area. So guy number three, is it, So, number three, the man walking by, he's a guy from Madison Heights. And what does he do when he meets the guy from Lynchburg who's beaten on the side of the road? Does he kick him when he's down? No. Does he walk by like the priest and the Levite? No. Does he talk about how busy he is? Of course not, we know that. He sees a need and he acts to remedy the situation. He responds to a person in need. And from the reading of the story, the Samaritan didn't possess any special skills, he didn't jump up and perform CPR. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't, he didn't set a broken bone. He didn't, he just responded. He bound the man's wounds. He placed him on his donkey. He took him to an inn and he left funds to cover the cost of recovery. And he said to the innkeeper, hey, if, there's, if, if what I've given you is not enough, when I'm coming back through town, I'll pay the difference. See, this story is a fantastic, fantastic example of the bystander effect. There's two people, they're way too busy. They got too many things going on and they keep walking by somebody. Somebody else is gonna be better suited. Somebody else can help this poor guy. And who knows, those robbers might still be around. Maybe they're gonna come after me. So let's put this story in its proper narrative. It's a great story in and of itself. If you just look at it on its own, you're like, hey, there's something good to to hear there. But in its proper narrative, why did Jesus tell this story? So this story was Jesus' response to a smug, overly confident attorney. And I can say that as an attorney, I think sometimes some of my kind tend to be that way. Um, so this, this this attorney was trying to put Jesus in a jam. And looking back before the story, if we look back at verse 25 to 29, Jesus was asked, the man said to him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. He asks the question. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do I need to, uh, what's written in the law? And Jesus replies, well, how do you read it? He's really kind of like drawing this guy in. He's just kind of fighting him with his fish. And the man said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man, our keeper verse today, wanting to justify himself, he couldn't just leave it alone he has to take it one step further. And he's like, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And he wasn't asking, I mean, come on. He wasn't asking like, hey, who's my neighbor? Like, I don't know the guy next to me. Can you introduce me to Bob? No, he was really trying to get at something. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So after the story, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus asks a question of the man. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? So did you catch that? The man asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asked, who is a neighbor? And the expert replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. You you, you ever think about that response? Jesus says, which of these three? And Jesus said, there's a priest, there's a Levite, there's a Samaritan. Which one had mercy? And he's like, or or, which one was a neighbor? Uh, the one who had mercy. See, I believe that the, that the, that the, that the, that the lawyer couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He's, he, this is what lawyers do, if, you, if you're not aware. When lawyers have to admit something, we tend to go into passive voice, and we tend to be as clear but unclear as we possibly can. So a normal person would say, who was, who was the neighbor? Oh, the Samaritan. A lawyer who's feeling like he's been put in his place would say, uh, the one who had mercy. Anyway, just a little point for you there. So when Jesus answered this way, who was a neighbor? He cut right through the question to the heart of the matter. See, Jesus was talking about an attitude. He wasn't talking about geographic proximity. He wasn't talking about the person that lives to the right and the left of you. He wasn't talking about the person that has the house behind you that you share a fence with. He wasn't talking about the person that you go to church with. He was talking about a heart attitude. See, loving your neighbor as yourself is not just about helping people that are near us, that are like us, that we enjoy spending time with. It's not about bringing a meal to a family who's just had a baby, which is an amazing thing and which is something we should all do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know what it takes to be a neighbor? Bring a meal to the Lasky's. They just had baby number five. No, that's not what he's saying. He's also not talking about going and visiting a friend who's recovering from surgery. He's not talking about supporting someone in your church who's going on a mission trip. Let me be clear. Those are all good things. Those are things that we should do. Those are things that we want to do. Those are things that don't require a lot of, out of us. It's not that it's like, oh my goodness, man, I gotta go help Matt. No, it's like, yeah, absolutely. They've had a baby. This is awesome. We want to do those things. What Jesus is getting at are those things that we don't necessarily want to do or that stretch us. And, if, and here's my rationale for that. If you combine that, if you go back in Luke chapter six, verses 32, Jesus says this, he says, what credit is it to you when you love those who love you? Even sinners love those who love them. Jesus' point in, in, when you pull these two things together is it's strikingly clear that the phrase that Jesus says, being a neighbor, it's about giving of ourselves to those who we encounter, who we might not otherwise have anything to do with or who we purposely don't want anything to do with, but that's nobody here, right? It's about responding to the situations that unfold in front of us. And it's actually all about the desired results of the mission of this church and the vision of this church. And, and Pastor Matt said it earlier today, what is, what is our vision? To reach, feed, and release people to be the hands and feet of Christ. And being a neighbor is that exactly. Being the hands and feet of Christ is what it means to be a neighbor. So miracles come with a cost. And that cost isn't necessarily that we pull out our checkbook and we write, we write a check. That cost is, is, it's coming out of us to do those things that we're uncomfortable with. It's laying down ourselves. It's, It's coming up with the human willingness. It's being the hands and feet of Jesus. All right, so where do we go from here? How do you incorporate this into your life? It's not hard, but it's also not easy. I'll be totally honest with you. It's not the easiest thing. See, the easy part is if we can remember that every day presents the opportunity to be a catalyst for a miracle. We can walk around all day saying, you know what? I can be a catalyst for a miracle. I can help somebody. And you see someone in the grocery store, you're like, hey, they need some help. You see someone who needs help loading their groceries. Sure, I can help them. You see someone in the parking lot after service who's, who's, who might be handicapped and they need help loading a wheelchair. I can do that. We can do all those things. There's those things that we naturally do. But again, that's not really what it is. That hard part is counting the cost. It's taking the plunge to step out and to step up to be the hands and feet of Jesus. All right, so wrapping it up. As we go from here today, I want you to remember this, that today and every day, you have the opportunity to be the key ingredient of a miracle in someone's life. All you need to do is be willing to serve. Step forward when others are looking around and seeing who's gonna help. When you're in that crowd and you see everyone looking around, looking at each other saying, I don't know who's gonna help. Don't call not it, just step forward and step up. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'd like to close with a, the second half of the prayer of St. Francis. And that prayer reads as such, as as goes, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to to be consoled, to be understood as to understand, to love, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.